0: Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Panther Podcast, where birders talk birding. My guest this week is Dr. Jeffrey Hill. Dr. Hill is an ornithologist and a professor at the University of Auburn in Alabama. And he's not only an ornithologist, he's a birder. A lot of ornithologists really might not be so much birders, but he covers both worlds well. We talk a bit about his birding story, some of his birding escapades, but a lot of the episode talks about his research. I think his research is really fascinating. One of the hot topics in birding, and therefore in ornithology these days, is speciation. What really makes a species? What defines a species? Well, Dr. Hill has a theory called the mitonuclear coadaptation hypothesis. Sounds like a really fancy name, it is. But what it basically talks about is that mitochondria are what scientists have found can define a species, can not define, can be used to identify a species, Uh, it works in all sorts of birds, fish, mammals, all sorts of things, and it doesn't make sense that the relatively tiny bit of DNA that's in a mitochondria can somehow define a species. Theory doesn't work, people have spent a lot of energy trying to put the theory down, but it works. And so they've developed a mitochondrial DNA barcode. They basically have a, a stamp of what the, they can sequence all of the genetic material in the mitochondria and come up with a barcode for that. And if there's enough difference in the barcode, you'll notice that that's what a species defines a species. So if you look at, through the field guides and you see yep, the, this species is different from that species, if you look, the DNA barcode is enough different that it should be a different species. But if you look at subspecies, often the DNA barcode is not enough different that it would define a species. So it actually works really nicely, and by just looking at the barcode, you can tell what species a, a specimen is from, just a drop of blood or a feather. It's used in the in the uh, uh, industries like. Uh, Checking is something really made of ivory, or is it a, a feather from a, an endangered bird, or what? Things like that. He talks a little bit about that, but it didn't make too much sense. But his theory goes a long way toward explaining that, because the mitochondria are their energy-producing part of, a, of, of every cell. If the mitochondria aren't producing energy, the cell dies, the organism doesn't survive. If it doesn't work well, it's not efficient, it's not fit. Survival of the fittest, it doesn't survive. Uh, So it it is important, and his theory goes on to explain how that could possibly be the driver uh, for speciation and to define species. Pretty cool stuff, I think you'll enjoy it, Uh, and I sure did. This week I had a nice week of birding too. got out with Ken Brown yesterday. Uh, We went up to King County. Uh, King County Is north of Pierce County where I live, and so we tend not to go that way often because you want to get up birding in the morning, and just to get to King County in the morning, the traffic can be wicked, Uh, and so we just don't go there too often. But we battled the traffic to work on our King County lists. We haven't birded in the summer in King County a lot, and so we went up to the Carnation uh, Snoqualmie Falls area. Went to Three Forks Park and Snoqualmie Falls, had a really nice time there. got Ken Red-Eyed Vireo for a state list this year and uh, added some species to our county list. That was fun. Uh, but in addition, we we noticed a couple of things. At Snoqualmie Falls, we really went there hoping for a black swift. Black swifts are a a species that nest behind waterfalls. The only place they nest is behind waterfalls. Uh, And so we're hoping to see one because I've sometimes seen near Snoqualmie Falls, but it was a clear day. And by the time we got there, it was later in the day. And so they were probably high and far away feeding and we didn't get to see any. But we did notice, Ken actually noticed, that there were these little concrete uh, holes and above the dam is a hydroelectric project and a, a big concrete wall there. There are little three or four inch wide uh, holes in the concrete. They're round, and I'm guessing they have to do with reinforcing the concrete wall. But anyway, northern rough swallows have discovered that they work nicely as a substitute for cavities in sandy or muddy banks uh, as nest sites. There are lots of rough-wing swallows nesting in the concrete wall there. We thought that was pretty funny and cool. Had, a, had fun with that. On the way home, uh, we stopped at Dumas Bay Park, and and I had not birded there, I think maybe once, not much for sure. It's a pretty cool place. has a nice little upland habitat. We saw a brown creeper down on the beach. Ken uh, picked a California gull out of the flock of uh, hybrids and glaucoswing gulls that were there along with the Caspian terns. That's a little unusual in the summertime here. Uh, And so it was a nice, nice addition to our day list, and we made it home through the traffic in time to go to our ABC meeting. Our ABC Birding Club uh, meets once a month, and last night was our monthly meeting, and uh, had a really interesting program. Uh, Jerry brought Jerry brought us and Clarice Clark talked about their recent trip to Flo- uh, Florida to Hawaii, where they helped with bird conservation efforts, both with honey creepers way up in in the high areas, the inaccessible areas. They talked about the the the. The research that's going on, and and how kind of combination of fun, scary, and difficult it was, and, and then then they went and helped with a seabird conservation project where they uh, worked with uh, seabirds and talked about the issues with seabird conservation. You know, the things you think about are uh, fishery depletion and that, but big aspects are uh, hydroelectric lines. Hydroelectric lines swing all across the the. Area both in Hawaii like they do here. Well, these seabirds that fly at night uh, just crash into these crash into these lines because they can't see them, and uh, and die that way. A lot of them die that way every year. But the other big issue is feral cats. Feral cats, gosh, feral cats everywhere. I've talked about cats before, uh, but anyway, uh, it's a bane to uh, land breeding birds everywhere, and especially. Uh, especially seabirds. They're they're very vulnerable. The chicks are just, they can't fly. They're in a cavity. The birds can just climb in and eat them without any difficulties. So the the cats just uh, devour these guys and are a real problem. Uh, And so uh, they've come up with a unique way to try to uh, avoid that. They've come up with uh, basically taking the eggs out of the nests uh, or the chick I think the chicks out of the nest right after they're born, and moving them to a protected area where they have some man-made burrows, and they feed them by hand, and they're in a protected area the cats can't get to. And so they have a much higher survival rate, and uh, and they uh, expect them to come back to these same cavities and nest, which will be in a protected area. So that is a, an interesting approach to that. They also came up, talk about a way to light up the power lines, but that's a whole separate issue. But anyway, it was a really fun talk. We enjoyed that. And I think you'll enjoy hearing from Dr. Jeffrey Hill today. Uh, so here we go with the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number 21 with Dr. Jeffrey Hill. Welcome, Jeffrey. Thanks to the uh, Bird Banner Podcast.
1: Oh, hey, uh, hey, Ed. It's nice to be here.
0: Yeah. Good to hear from you. I, I found out about you by your, your blog site, uh, the Ornithological the ornithologist blog. It's pretty cool. It looks like you haven't been too active on that lately. No,
1: I get lazy. I really have to. I actually have a bunch of posts I put on our our local uh, bird list serve that I really should just paste into the blog and add some pictures. I really need to get um, more regular with my blog posting.
0: You know, it's, it's, if it's fun, do it. If it isn't, don't. That's the way I, I have a blog. I, I post to it when I feel like it. That's yeah, silly.
1: yeah. fortunately, <laughs> sometimes I'll go six months. But I really, if you want people to ever take a look at your blog, you have to do at least monthly posts, if not weekly.
0: A little more, a little more active would probably help with that. Anyway, uh, I'd like to hear your birding story. You've been a birder for a long time. How did you get going in birding?
1: Well, I've always liked the outdoors and nature and animals um, and you know, I was always looking for ways to uh, to uh, see things and and uh, discover things. So when I was a, a small boy, say uh, six, seven, eight, uh, it was um, uh, reptiles and amphibians. I lived in an area where there were um, no venomous snakes, luckily, because we just picked everything up, my friends and I, uh, but um, uh, salamanders and snakes. And uh, I was uh, very active in, in fishing, not, um, not like bass fishing, high-class fishing, just putting a worm on a hook and uh, catching everything we could in a creek. And we actually keyed out our fish. We wanted to identify our fish. so so i did all that i didn't even know that you could identify birds or or look at birds and then i went on a uh just an afternoon outing with my mother's uh teacher friend she was a high school teacher and the biology teacher led a little bird walk on that trip and Uh that was really my first time I ever was birding and uh he had a spotting scope, and he put a cowbird, a brown-headed cowbird, in the spotting scope, and I just couldn't believe you could look at a bird and know what it was. And from that trip on, I just started looking at birds myself, and uh, that's when I think I was ten or eleven. And I've pretty much been bird watching ever since.
0: Very cool. Very cool. Were there, you know, other than the brown-headed cowbird and the spotting scope, were there other you know things that really piqued your interest to got you going as a young youngster?
1: yeah bird wise. so i was I birded completely in a vacuum uh, really until I got to college and even even somewhat after that. Uh, so I didn't belong to any clubs. I rarely went on any outings or even heard of any outings. Uh, I just sort of uh, chased down birds and and uh, and uh, figured out what they were from books. Um, so uh, in about let's see, when I was about fifteen, uh, it was a wet year. I grew up around Cincinnati, and the Ohio River flooded some bottomlands to the west of Cincinnati
0: uh-huh.
1: um, called the Oxbow uh, Bottomlands. It was undeveloped at the time. And there was a – I read in the newspaper – this was <laughs> long before the internet, or oh in, or uh, this would have been a, in the early 70s. Uh, I read in a newspaper that there was going to be a, um, uh, a field trip led to look at the ducks. And Uh so I showed up for that field trip. I I was driving around myself. I think I was 16 Mm -hmm. at the time. And, uh, uh, you know, it was an epiphany because these, uh, whoever was leading the local tour had spotting scopes. And it was was an incredible array of ducks in the uh, flooded fields along the, it's where the Great Miami River joins the Ohio River.
0: So this is spring or fall? Do this is remember?
1: uh this is march yeah this is spring. spring
0: spring uh yeah and all the
1: ducks are in high breeding so plumage, and i had never good, yeah
0: i'd all never seen good. any of
1: these birds before and so i i had a lot of fun seeing them that way but i really wanted to get closer and see them better so i went back the next day and um uh and sort of uh snuck around i did a lot of crawling on my hands and knees and on my belly so i get right up next to the ducks uh-huh. and uh you know it was fantastic i saw a lot of birds for the first time. And uh, that sort of cemented my interest in in uh, in seeing a, a more of a variety of birds. I had just been working on forest birds up until that right. time.
0: Right. Okay. So that introduced you to a waterfowl. And uh, then it sounds like you must have studied ornithology or some sort of uh, biology or biochemistry in, in college. You went on to be a professor
1: right yeah so I knew I wanted to uh, be a professional um, uh, biologist Uh, uh, I didn't know exactly what what kind uh, when I went to Indiana University and I was lucky to um, to see a sign for a job as a bird catcher uh, a research assistant with Mm -hmm. uh, with Val Nolan and Ellen Ketterson when I was a sophomore so my freshman year, I worked in a paleobotany lab, but uh, okay. but I but I had work study. It used to be a type of financial aid. It's not very common anymore. Uh,
0: Standard when I went to school. Yeah, yeah same, same but uh,
1: so I had work study. So I was looking for a job, and I saw that they wanted someone to assist with birds, and uh, and I showed up, and I became their their chief junco catcher. So they were doing studies on dark-eyed juncos, and I. The other thing I did as a kid is I trapped animals. I was a really good trapper, uh, (laughs) so I could catch birds. So I remember uh, when Val Nolan didn't know me very well, um, uh, one of the very first days I worked, he showed me how to work this simple little trap. It was just a a walk-in trap with gravity-activated doors. Uh, They're they're called – they're potter traps. They're four-cell traps, and he had a big stack of them. And he said, yeah, see if you can run this, see if you can catch a few birds. And he gave me a string of bands, uh, and I had been shown how to put bands on birds. And so okay. – and he just left me for the afternoon. It was uh, uh, December, early December in uh, Bloomington, Indiana, and uh, and I set all the traps. They had a giant pile of traps. It must have been 40 uh, walk-in traps across this whole big acreage. <laughs> And I, I remember I, I worked until almost complete dark, and I, I banded a hundred junkos. Oh my goodness! And uh, until so I, uh, I was supposed to call in and tell Val how I did, and he thought you know I'd get two or three birds, and he said <laughs> how'd you do? And I said well I got a hundred, and he said he's like this pause, and he goes what? And I said yeah I caught a hundred, and so from then on I was the guy they sent out to get junkos. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you, your your rate, your hourly uh, rate, you should have been a pretty, uh, been on a piecework. A piece piece piecemeal, right? yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, that works for me when I'm trapping or fishing, because uh, I do like to go after uh, go after stuff.
0: <laughs> Very cool. Uh, so you, so you, uh, you became the the Junko catcher for the junco experiments. How, how yeah. did your education proceed from there?
1: Well, you know, it was, it was a pretty standard biology degree, although at the time Indiana University had almost no organismal biology. So, luckily, they did have ornithology just because Val Nolan taught it, uh, okay. but he was actually a law professor. He didn't have a biology degree. <laughs> he uh, was a birder. <laughs> he was. He was a lifetime birder. He was a great ornithologist, but he chose law as his actual profession. So, he was actually dean of the law school at Indiana university while he was teaching ornithology. (laughs) Uh, and, and, uh, yeah, so he had honorary doctorate and he was adjunct in biology and he actually had grad students, but he was technically a law professor, but he was a great ornithologist, uh, and a great mentor. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, so, uh, I, I got my training in research biology with, um, Val Nolan and, and his wife, who was also uh, a young professor in the biology department, Ellen Ketterson. And, um, and so the classroom work was fine. I got some basic background, but really I learned about field biology uh, working with, with
0: the researchers. Did you do a lot of birding while you are in college too?
1: Yeah, uh, it was, you know, it was still a lot on my own. So I could walk from the dorms at Indiana University over to a place called Griffey Reservoir. And it was really fantastic. There were rough grouse. Um, I would see rough grouse a- a on every trip. This is walking distance from the center of campus. Nice. Uh, and, you know, a nice diversity of, of birds, so, uh, a, a nice diversity of breeding warblers and and things. So and uh, and I birded the Lake Monroe a lot at the time, which was a really nice bird watching spot. Um, so yeah, so I got out bird watching some, but mostly it was on my own. It wasn't so with really many not, not in a group.
0: birding community, so to speak. No,
1: no, I've always been kind of a loner, and uh, I was just birding on my own. So I sort of met some of the birders in the community when I I found a rare bird when I was a um, I think I was a sophomore at at Indiana. I I found a uh, uh, a black shoulder kite. It was a white oh, nice. kite at the time. Right. Uh, yeah, it was a okay. first state record. Um, and uh, and uh, so I, I did, it's not a hard bird to identify. And I got a good look at it. And uh, I called up the local birder who I'd met once before. He sort of <laughs> didn't pay attention to me. And I said, told him this guy's name was Steve Glass. And I said, I you know I, I have a white tail kite. And you know he he didn't believe me, of course. But he went sure. back out with me. And we were actually able to photograph it. Very nice. Interestingly, when I entered that in eBird just last year, the year before, I got a note from the editor saying that uh this must be a mistake. There's no state record of white tailed kite in Indiana. <laughs> and I said there darn well was a record. I wrote that up for their state bird journal, the Indian yeah. Audubon Quarterly. And I gave him the citation and he went and looked it up and he said, This isn't in the records. I said, wow. I don't know what you call a record because it's in your published journal for your state. So, anyway.
0: <laughs> the Rare Birds <laughs> Committee isn't reading the journal. It so like. now
1: it's in, now it apparently has been called to their attention and it got added to the state list. It wasn't on the state list.
0: Very nice. Very nice. Contributing to science in a different way than you are now.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'd call that science, but it is definitely uh, it's, it's a little. Uh, yeah. Yeah,
0: very cool. Very cool. Uh, so then you went to grad school, obviously.
1: Yeah, I went out to the University of New Mexico uh, to work with a community ecologist, John Weens, um, mm-hmm. And that was a good experience. That was a really good group of people at New Mexico. A lot of bird, uh, bird uh, grad students, a lot of neat projects. Um, so I had, a, I had a nice three years at, at New Mexico. Uh, and then shifted over to the University of Michigan for my PhD.
0: Okay, so you've, you've uh, hit some good birding areas. You know, yeah. New Mexico, Yeah, pretty it, odd, and, uh, yeah and that's Michigan. right. And there
1: were some good birders. There was a guy that, who's still there, still very active birder, uh, Bill Howe, And uh, he he was kind of my birding mentor in uh, New Mexico. He was a really good birder. Right. And we had some nice field trips. And yeah. then when I got to Michigan, for the first time, I really landed in um kind of uh big time modern birding because my office mate at michigan was phil chew who still is a very active michigan birder okay. and uh and and lister that's that's the thing i'd never been around real listers before oh, okay. uh, competitive See, yeah. listers and very phil good. was very much a competitive lister in michigan still is and uh and and from with from phil's connection i met all the michigan uh, birders and listers, and I became very nice. aware of of state state list state birding uh, sure. and what have you. And I really hadn't been before so much.
0: So that's it's a different world, isn't it, when you get around yeah. uh, competitive listers? Yeah, very nice. So, so uh, I'm going to kind of skip ahead because uh, yeah. I really want to hear about this uh, the speciation uh, theory that you have. I'm not even sure I can pronounce it. The mitochondrial Mitonuclear coadaptation hypothesis. I think.
1: Yeah. Can, yeah. Can
0: you can you talk about that? I'm I'm sort of vaguely familiar with you know sure biologic and phylogenetic models of speciation. Right. I Tried to tried to work my through way through Cornell's uh, uh, ornithology online course. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but this is uh, I read uh, an article. I think it was in. AOS or something like
1: that. Yeah, that's a AOS. A- a- it's American Ornithological Society blog. Oh, yeah.
0: Okay. I read that an article in that that kind of talked. It was I don't know. if It was an interview with you or whatever, but it was like fascinating. So tell yeah. us about that.
1: Okay. Well, I think uh, birdwatchers in general know that uh, we're shifting towards more of a genomic-based view of species and. Um, uh, and it, really the opportunities for doing that are being created by cheap sequencing. So we've had big breakthroughs in biology where we can now do DNA sequencing very cheaply, very quickly. Right. And uh, we're, we're getting information that we simply didn't have before. Mm-hmm. So uh, the species concepts that we are currently using that the uh, AOS uh, checklist committee uses that make the decisions that ABA recognizes and and, and become the dogma we see in, te- in um, field guides, that's based on old hundred year old ideas about what species are. When we had no, uh, really no information about genetic structure of populations. Right. So those are all based on observables with binoculars, basically. So, sure. uh, how much do birds hybridize, uh, uh, uh you know, are they phenotypically distinct, uh, these kind of things. And with the new genomic techniques, we can, we can do much better than that in, in understanding what a species is. And so sure. really this, this all focuses on mitochondrial DNA. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of birds will have some idea of what I'm talking about here because uh, mitochondrial DNA plays big already and it has for, for 20 years in, um, in, in, uh, describing species. Um, so um, so we have two sets of DNA in our, in our bodies, in each cell of our body. Uh, the big nuclear genome, that's what we usually think of when we talk about our, our DNA, and mm-hmm. then a small mitochondrial genome right? It's only, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a, t- a, a tiny compared to the nuclear genome. And people have some idea about this. We have maternally inherited diseases. That's right. usually diseases carried on the mitochondria. So there's some, some knowledge. If you 23 and me, they'll tell you your mitochondrial haplotype and okay. your, the other genes that are on the nuclear chromosome. So this is what we're talking about, the mitochondrial DNA.
0: Right. And that gets passed from the female. Obviously, yeah, through the
1: and evidence. so uh, about uh, well, so is is, um, is biologists have been doing gene sequencing for for decades now, but but more intensively uh, as we get closer to present, uh, th- they noticed uh, that mitochondrial genes uh, were really useful for uh, diagnosing species. That even mm-hmm. when you couldn't get a clear signal. Of the species boundary with the nuclear genes, the mitochondrial genes were often very good at distinguishing species. That okay. species that had already been named just by plumage coloration and, and song. Species boundaries mm-hmm. that that we already thought we 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 were uh, comfortable with. Um, so that there's that, and then uh, about 15 years ago. Um, a group of zoologists made a real effort to find a way to diagnose species with a uh, gene sequence, uh, with a, mm-hmm. a, a sequence of um, we call nucleotides—the A's and right. T's and G's and C's—that right. make our our our, uh, our DNA sequence. And so uh, this became the DNA barcoding effort. And mm-hmm. these zoologists found that there was a a very small sequence, only 600 base pairs. And and that's 600 base pairs out of the 1 trillion
0: base pairs that we would
1: have in our whole genome. So only 600 of these A's and T's and G's and C's in sequence would diagnose a species. And the the 600 uh, base pair sequence that they found was actually a mitochondrial gene. It was one of the genes that codes for a protein that uh, uh, has a key function. And so, uh, right away, a lot of people said, no way, can't work. It's theoretically impossible. And they published a lot of papers showing theoretically how this simply couldn't work. But it did work. It worked really, really well. For birds, Mm -hmm. it worked almost perfectly. Everywhere that uh, uh, Peterson's, Eastern Peterson or Sibley had already shown a, a switch from one species to another, that's where we got a switch in the barcode sequence uh, for okay. these birds. So this was kind of perplexing. Theoretically, it couldn't work, but it did work, mm-hmm. especially for birds, for birds better than any other uh, taxon.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so so this is where I came in. I didn't have anything to do with any of that work, but I was really intrigued by the fact that uh, DNA barcodes uh, would work. Um, and so this... Barcoding effort had nothing to do with, with understanding the process of speciation. It, it was just a way to diag- we call diagnose species, to, right. to be able to, to uh, just take DNA and tell what a species was. And so it could be useful like for uh, wildlife trafficking. If you got just a tiny piece of an animal, of a bird, a feather or something, oh, yes. you Very could use cool. DNA and you could tell what it was if you could barcode it. it beyond birds, it's used in the seafood industry somebody mm-hmm. gives you a plate of fish says it's this fish uh department of agriculture can test the fish and with dna barcode they can tell for certain what what species that came from right um so it has a lot of practical value but for, from a speciation standpoint it's interesting because something was wrong with our theory if the theory couldn't predict uh those barcode uh pattern in birds right and so uh, really i i, I just worked on this question for a while uh try understanding a little bit about the biochemistry uh uh, that was involved with the what what the uh, mitochondrial sequence was coding for and Mm -hmm. I came to this idea that um the defining uh uh the the thing that defined a species was really its mitochondrial DNA and specifically how its mitochondrial DNA uh, uh, interacted with the, the uh, nuclear DNA that created the mitochondrion, and, mm-hmm. and this is where it gets a little, a little bit technical, but we already said mitochondria has a tiny uh, gene sequence, right. very small compared to nuclear. So that means mitochondria doesn't carry enough genes to create itself, right? right. You can't create a whole mitochondrion from the genes in a mitochondrion because there's way too few. Mm-hmm. Most, of the co- most of the code for a mitochondrion is um, uh, in the nuclear genome, right. and so that means those nuclear genes and those mitochondrial genes have to co-function perfectly or you don't get a functional mitochondria.
0: Right, and then you don't have I, any energy.
1: <laughs> that's right, and it, mitochondrial function is absolutely key to life. I like to think of it as a, uh, a manufacturing plant that has to get parts from another company to Mm -hmm. say build an engine if those parts don't come in perfectly matching the on-site parts then the engine just doesn't work right. The parts mm-hmm. don't fit together right, the, and the engine doesn't work right. Yeah. So that's so, what or, you or get with – Or
0: maybe in the cases where they just don't work quite as well, it could lead to you yeah. know, more fit yeah, and your, less fit individuals. Yeah, system. your engine
1: doesn't run very – doesn't idle well, and you can get somewhere, but sure. barely. Yeah, so yeah. that's what we're dealing with. So the, with these mitochondrial genes and nuclear genes that have to work together, we call that – they have to be uh, – um, uh, co-adapted, and, mm-hmm. and so um, that co-adaptation becomes spe- specific to each species. Since mm-hmm. the mitochondrial sequence is species-specific, that set of nuclear genes that works with the mitochondrial genes also has to be species-specific. Mm-hmm. And so the reason this plays into speciation is is when you create a hybrid, when say a uh, blue-wing warbler breeds with a golden-wing warbler, produces. Mm-hmm. A uh, a uh, 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 Brewster's warbler, right? Well, that means some of the the blue-winged uh, nuclear genes have to interact. Let's say the mom is a is a golden-winged warbler. Some of the blue-winged nuclear genes have to uh, co-function with the with the golden winged mitochondrial genes, right? And they don't function together very well. So the hybrid doesn't have very good fitness. It doesn't it doesn't do things very well, and it doesn't survive very well.
0: Doesn't, doesn't so, make that big flight down and back and survive the winter. Potentially like not. That. Sure.
1: Yeah. And so um, that stops the flow of genes across the species boundary. It's not the choosing of the mate necessarily. That that can help. But it's the incom- incompatibilities between mitochondrial nuclear genes that stops gene flow at species boundaries.
0: Right. and that's so makes a lot of sense.
1: So that's okay. how we now would define a species is by though the, the uh, uh, characteristic mitochondrial nuclear genes. Since the nuclear genes are harder to find and deal with, sure. you could just use the mitochondrial genes as a really good indicator of species identity. And that's what barcoding is. That's why barcoding works.
0: Right. So, so you've basically worked backwards. You said, okay, barcoding works, why does barcoding work? Came up with a theory of why barcoding works, and you're in the process of trying to validate that theory to a point where it's widely accepted. Uh, right, that's, that's like a really good oversimpli- way to put it. Maybe that's yeah. oversimplification, but no, it's exactly like that's right. I, that's what I'm hearing.
1: Yeah, it's exactly right. I call it bottom up instead of top down. We've mm-hmm. we've always uh, worked on the speciation problem from really a birdwatcher perspective. Uh, walking mm-hmm. around the surface of the Earth and seeing how birds were distributed, and then making up really mechanisms for how that could be created. And instead, I started with the mechanisms, the cell biology, and the and the uh, genomic biology, and worked forward to project how that would create speciation.
0: Yes, very cool. Very cool. I think uh, you know that makes a lot of sense. And and uh, and, and I I read another article. I think was somewhere in the process of doing my research on you that uh, you've done a lot of work with uh, species coloration and that sort of thing. And, and, uh, and, and I think if I remember correctly, the it in birds, it's backwards to mammals. The, the male is the one with that passes the, the big chromosome on and the, and the female is more like the XY. Yeah. I think it's X W or Z W or something. C W like right. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and so uh, the, the, the uh, I'm losing my train of thought but the, but that plays a big role too in, in fitness and, and that sort of thing
1: right yeah it gets complicated uh, there's <laughs> something called Haldane's rule um, which is just the the observation that when you when you have hybridization going on mm-hmm. in in uh, in mammals which are uh, XY uh, females do better than males right. so all all mules are are um female right okay. because they're they're a donkey horse hybrid and there's mm-hmm. no male mules right well you get to birds and it's the opposite uh males do well and females do poorly mm-hmm. and this is just an empirical observation from captive hybridization of of animals okay. uh but now we can explain it i'm not, i i will not get into all the details but the mitonuclear thing explains haldane's rule
0: Sure, sure. The males get the mitochondria, in the feet. Yeah, but yeah,
1: mitochondria always passed by females. Right. But the the nuclear genes, where those nuclear genes interact with with the mitochondrial genes are, it really creates Haldane's rule.
0: Exactly, exactly. Cool, cool. So I'm going to break away from the science, so we don't uh, get too deep and, and maybe bore some people. Uh, but uh, anyway, yeah. uh, you've got some big birding plants coming up. You're going to Alaska. Tell me what, you, what, you, where are you going? What you're going to do?
1: Yeah, it's really not a birding trip, but we certainly oh, will look bummer. at birds. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. So it's the it's the annual meeting of the of the of the bird scientists, the uh, American Ornithologist Society or, oh. or American Ornithological Society, and uh, it's in Anchorage. So mm-hmm. and in June. So That'd I had hoped to go to St. Paul and the. Oh, wow. um, so the conference is is an organized thing and they have a a website and they had a link to tours that they were that they were sponsoring right and there was a a trip to St. Paul and so I clicked on that way back when I was getting organized maybe before New Year sometime and uh, I got one email follow-up email that we would get notifications and stuff and then I don't know what's up with that tour company but they they may not be in business anymore, but they wouldn't oh. answer phone calls. They wouldn't. There's no email. It got to be uh, April, and we had no plans. We didn't oh, know boy. we were going if we were going on St. Paul trip or anything. And and I just gave up. I I spent another few days trying to contact them, getting no response. And then I just said, "What the heck?" Because my wife's going with me. She's not much of a bird watcher mm-hmm. and i said let's just go to barrow uh yeah, you know forget tours let's just fly to barrow uh i can't remember the um the native name now that's used yeah, they I don't remember it, yes. that They're anyway i still it's quite called barrow um but we're just going to go to barrow and rent a car and drive around so good uh, as out, much as you can drive the, around Barrow,
0: watch out for the polar bears <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah see we're hoping we see one but not yeah. i don't want to be eaten by one but i'd like yeah, to see, see one, one from but, a
0: distance sure
1: but it should be fun i mean it i've made no great. preparation i think you can only drive a couple miles any direction out of out of Barrow, I've never been okay. there. Uh, I haven't
0: uh, been there. I've been to Nome, but I haven't been to Barrow.
1: Okay. I've been to Nome too, and I've been to Saint Lawrence Island, so I've done okay. Alaska so you, a little done, bit.
0: You've done a little bit of Alaska. Yeah,
1: I would have liked. it. I'll get to Saint Paul sometime. It just wasn't going to happen this time. Uh, mm-hmm. But we'll have we'll have fun. We're gonna we're gonna go on a halibut fishing trip. My wife loves okay. to fish, um, and that should get us um, some seabirds. Some mm-hmm. of the uh, yeah, you
0: get out there uh, at least.
1: Yeah, oh yeah, we'll get uh, kites as merlet, and uh, we'll get we'll get some stuff. Um, right, uh, just you can't probably miss it when you get out in the. Uh,
0: yeah, I would I would expect it to uh, be pretty pretty the, gettable. The,
1: the, the deep water areas where you catch halibut are going to have all the seabirds. So uh, mm-hmm. so we'll fish and bird one day, and then we're flying up to to uh, uh, Barrow, and mm-hmm. you know, nice thing about the Arctic is birds are fantastic, but the list is pretty pretty mm-hmm. manageable. It's yeah. not like going to India where you have a thousand birds to study. Oh, I no. mean, you know, spectacled eider, um, uh, stellar's eider, um, the loon, yellow-billed loon, some,
0: seabirds and some other stuff. And...
1: Yeah, we won't probably get Ross's gall. It's a bad time of year for that and yeah. stuff, but who knows? They get them in June once in a you while. If know. it flies by, I'll identify it. It's not a hard bird to identify.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so we'll just, we'll just see. I just want to see the tundra and uh some of those breeding shorebirds and uh loons and eiders and it should be nice we're only there we're only on the ground for less than 48 hours but oh yeah it's there's not you know it's a it's a pretty finite spot you get in and there's a town
0: pretty well in two days yeah and
1: it never gets dark and anyway (laughs) so yeah we're going to going to barrow uh to to look around and i'll be birding they have bird walks every morning from downtown Anchorage from the convention center
0: is can be pretty good I, yeah there's a forest there by the university I, I spent a day in Anchorage and, and looked around it was pretty good
1: yeah pretty we'll good. have local guides yeah. to take us out uh, on well, the morning that'll bird be walks great. That'll be so great. Uh, yeah, so I'll at least get my year list my North American year list up uh, just yeah. burning good around Anchorage so good
0: for you y- you also had a sabbatical in Australia did yeah. you do a lot of birding while you were there?
1: I did. I was disciplined. I didn't do that much birding because I was writing a book on the the minor nuclear stuff we were just talking right. about. Right. Um, so I was at a university. I was really in a in a terrible bird spot. And there aren't many oh. terrible bird spots in Australia. Yeah. Cuz Melbourne is an absolutely huge city. It's mm-hmm. it's just a sprawling huge city and I was I had a, a room in a house in, if you ever look on Google Earth on Melbourne and see the sp- sprawling suburbs, I was right mm-hmm. in the center of that. Oh. So I was as far from bird habitat as you could get, um, and I didn't have a car. I just rode a bicycle to the university every day. Mm-hmm. So, um, so in that sense, it was limited. I didn't go bird watching crazy, uh, mm-hmm. but right when I got there, uh, I had a, uh, I hired a guide to take me around Victoria. Oh, nice. And We had a fantastic three-day trip around Victoria, um, seeing lots of those southern Australia, those blue mountain birds and, right. and stuff. And then, um, and then I did local birding. Uh, there's, I could ride my bike to nice wetland parks and stuff. The birds really are fantastic, even in the suburbs. There's rainbow lorikeets in everybody's front yard, and uh, and uh, gang gang cockatoos fly over, and there's you know just stuff even when it's not very birdy because it's urban it's still australia so
0: that's one uh, thing about so, traveling you know when you go yeah. somewhere else all the birds are new crazy, yeah that's right
1: know? it's fantastic yeah and so and and so i took a second to use, use the same guide on second tour up to Cairns, up to the to the cassowary area and we had a fantastic trip up to Cairns. had cassowary walk right past us you know five feet away nice. wow. uh and uh l- l- great diversity of birds and then um uh, a, a local birdie uh, one of the uh, students here at the university who liked a bird watch and i took did our own tour up to um the dry country north of melbourne um there is a, a special desert area uh called the um uh is it uh, uh, maori area and uh in the the desert scrub birds up there, and that was that was uh, great. So um, mm-hmm. we, uh, uh, w- I did three big trips, and then and then local birding, and and it so was got, it was so good. Around
0: a little, good for you. Yeah, I,
1: you know when I left Australia, despite the fact that I I really sat in, in five days a week, I wrote my book and only birded on the weekends and so distant, those few yeah. trips. I left Australia, I was number five in the country on eBird. <laughs> Because well, <laughs> I well, because I'd done more trail, I did, paid guides and got north and, and been and around. I left people, in May. Is eBird uh, so, pretty
0: popular there? i, I Oh, yeah, I don't have a, yeah, yeah. eBird's so popular. E- yeah, so a lot of the birders do eBirding. Good,
1: right, yeah, good. just pretty much like the U.S., and they have really oh, wow. good editors. And yeah, if you put down a questionable bird, you get a note within an hour <laughs> uh, about your bird. So, yeah.
0: good. Good. So I wanted to touch on at least one more thing. I, I, I really enjoy our uh, uh, local college. The uh, University of Puget Sound has a really nice natural history museum. And, and Peter Wimberger is a friend, and he's the curator of the museum there. You're the yeah. curator of the museum at, for at least the bird part of the museum at yeah. Auburn. How, how yeah. big a job is that, and how active is your museum there?
1: Well, it's it, research active. It's active. It's not a, it's not a display collection. So okay. there's really nothing for the public to come and see on the bird side of it. Uh, okay. We have an open house during a home football game every year, and everybody can come in and we'll pull the specimen trays open and show them the the, the mounts. Right. Uh, but it's really a research collection. Okay. So uh, it's got frozen tissue, and it's got uh, study skins of birds. You know, birds prepared, so they're right. they're um, they're not made meant to be lifelike or beautiful they're right. meant to preserve
0: the preserve
1: yeah. the bird right so we have a really nice uh, research collection and we use it for research but uh uh but yeah so it's um it's it's uh it's active in research but it's not a display collection
0: okay the, the ups museum is pretty active they have monthly open houses and different displays and it's pretty cool anyway yeah so, th- so that's another part of your uh your uh Birding slash... Yeah, being carrier a bird uh, is really nice, being. yeah. Being. Yeah. Very nice. Good, good. So what's up from here? You just finished a book. Did that get published yet or...
1: Yep, just came out with Oxford University Press.
0: Okay. And that's called...
1: Uh, mito-nuclear ecology.
0: Okay. Probably so that's not the New for, York Times
1: No, it's written for... Probably
0: not the New list, yeah.
1: Yeah, written for biologists. But it does really... Lay out that minor nuclear compatibility species concept and talk a lot about species concept and approaches to to understanding speciation. So for the uh, ornithologists who are making the policy about speciation, hopefully it'll it'll change minds. Hopefully
0: it'll gain traction. Good for you. Yeah. Good for you. Are there any other things you wanted to make sure we talk about today?
1: Uh, no, not in particular. It's just fun to chat about stuff and
0: good talk about birding. I appreciate coming on. That's nice. That's yes. Yeah. Nice. Well, I wish you well in your upcoming trip to Alaska, and uh, I uh, will uh, continue to follow your blog, and hopefully you'll keep it posted with both your birding stuff and your science stuff. It's a, it's a I, nice I'm committed it's a nice to resource. doing better. Yeah, I'll it's do nice better resource. on my blog. Yeah. I'll, I'll make sure I put links to those things in a couple of your articles in my podcast notes so people can see them. Jeffrey. Thank you so much for being on the Bird Banner Podcast, and good bird and good day.
1: Okay, thank you for having me on.
0: Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number 21 with Dr. Jeffrey Hill. You'll find links in the podcast notes to both Dr. Hill's websites, as well as to some articles uh, outlining some of the aspects of his research that I think you'll find interesting. I sure did. Uh, In addition, be sure to leave a review on the iTunes store, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast feeds. It helps me to get feedback as to what you're thinking, and it helps the platforms to recognize that people are really listening. Thanks again. Until next time, good birding, good day.